love that song that we sang at the beginning, uh, All Hail King Jesus, and it talks about joining in heaven, singing holy. Uh, Do you realize that's what we do on Sunday mornings, that heaven, we saw in the book of Revelation that heaven is crying out, holy, 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 before the throne of God. And so as we come together as a church and sing, we are joining heaven and praising God. Isn't that a wonderful concept to think about, that we're joining heaven and praise God. We saw that in Revelation. In fact, we spent 42 weeks preaching through the book of Revelation. And I don't know who was more glad to be done, you or me, but it's done. Uh, and uh, we learned a lot through it. I know I did. Uh, the last book of the Bible. And this week, I want to swing to the whole other end. We're going to go from the maps to the table of contents. And we're going to be in Genesis 1. And I want to spend one week in Genesis 1. And we'll see how what you believe about the first chapter of the Bible sets the tone for everything else. And I tell you what, I sure did. I learned so much in preaching through Revelation, as that's usually the case. The one that teaches is one that learns the most. And I am so grateful for every word, verse, chapter of the Bible. As Colin said, it is our anchor. And that we can trust in God and we can trust in His Word. And aren't we glad for that? So today's sermon is titled, In the Beginning. And we're going to be in Genesis 1, verse 1, uh, through chapter 2, verse 3. So you should be able to find it pretty easily, right there at the beginning of your Bible. Let's begin with the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now before we go any further, I want to just explain something that happens uh, here in verses, between verses 2 and 3. There are some, not many people hold to this anymore, but there are some, you may hear some older radio preachers that talk about a gap theory that exists between Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that God basically created this world, uh, possibly that this is where, you know, Satan fell, he was cast down to the earth, and the earth was just kind of a mess, and so then and there was this gap of millions of years, and then God kind of recreates the world beginning at verse 3, and, and that is one theory, it's called the gap theory. I don't think that's what's happening at all, what we see in Genesis is the same type of thing we see in Revelation where there is a summary statement given and then what follows are the details that work that out. We saw that in Revelation over and over again, a vision given and then more explanation. You see that in Genesis repeatedly, a summary statement given and then the details are flushed out. It's kind of like with any good storytelling, really, except these are literal true events, but a lot of times with the storytelling, maybe something begins like on a dark and stormy night, right? The stage is set, and then you get the details. I think that's exactly what's happening with Genesis 1, 1 and 2, is just here's the big picture, and then verse 3 begins the details of working that out. Now, as we read through Genesis 1, I want you to pay attention to something. In especially Hebrew writing, when you see repetition, that repetition is telling you the point. It is pointing to what is being really focused on, what message is being communicated. You see that in the Psalms a lot. And so as we read through chapter 1, I'm going to give you an assignment as I read through it. I want you to pay attention to some things. I'm going to give you some things to look for. 
The repetition of then God said. That's one thing. Then God said. Listen for let there be. Let there be. Listen for and it was so. Listen for then God made. If you're writing these down, I'll give you just a second. I'll repeat them in a minute. Listen for it was good. You'll see that repeated. It was good. Listen for day, just the word day. Listen for evening and morning, evening and morning. And then according to its kind, according to its kind. You will hear these things repeated, and they are not repeated by mistake. It is God screaming the point of Genesis 1 to us through this repetition. So let's pick back up at verse 3, and we'll read through verse 8, and you'll begin to see it already. Verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So evening and morning were the first day. Then there's a lot of those terms right there in those verses. Now look at verse 6. Then God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Then God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament and the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. Whew, now I can quit saying firmament. And so the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, did you notice the repetition already just from the first two verses? But also, I want you to notice something. Don't miss this. Did you notice the power of God's Word? God created by the power of His Word. But also, in His creative process, He names what He creates. Now, we know as parents... What is the first rule that you don't do if a stray dog or cat shows up at your house? You don't name it. Because as soon as you name it, you're done for. You've got a new dog or a new cat. It implies ownership. It implies something personal has taken place. As God creates by his word, he also names his creation, thus implying his ownership over everything that there is. Now let me give you a reminder again of what to listen for. Listen to, listen for, then God said, let there be, and it was so. Then God made, it was good, day, evening and morning, according to its kind. Listen for this repetition as we continue on. Verse 9, then God said, there it is again, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Isn't that amazing? When God speaks, his expectation is his creation will do what he says. And over and over again in Genesis 1, that's exactly what happened. So just cut and dry. God said this, and that's what happened. And the Lord called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was what? That it was good. And the earth brought forth grass and Herb, the herb that yielded seed according to its kind. Here goes the repetition. And the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So evening and morning were the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament. Oh, there's that word again. 
of the heavens to divide the day from the night. And let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And what? It was so. Then God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. I'd have loved to be there for that moment, wouldn't you? How amazing would that have been? Can you imagine that? Just stars appearing. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was what? Good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Just a couple more verses here. Then God said, let the waters abound with the abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded. Do you see this, the distinction between God creating what was in the water and in the sky and the land? He didn't create something in the water to eventually be on the land. He created things for the water and things for the land according to their kind. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was what? Good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas and the birds, and let birds multiply on the earth. So God, this is his first um, commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And he's giving it to the animals. He's speaking it to the animals. And they're to multiply according to their kind. So evening and morning were the fifth day. Now just pause there for a minute. Those are the first five days of creation. There's a lot there. We just kind of moved through that quickly. I mean, if you talk about moments, I have people ask me, like, what moment? They, I was in the children's ministry last week during Sunday school, and they're like, what are your favorite Bible stories? What moment would you have liked to have been there for? You know, I think it would have been pretty amazing to be there to see some of these things take place. I mean, to just see the stars flung in the sky, to see birds start flying through the air. I mean, God's creative work, and what's so amazing, again, is the creative power of his word, that as he speaks, it was so those are the first five days of creation. And then comes the sixth day where God creates man. And then you'll continue to notice this repetition, but you also see that God sets man apart for a special purpose. And man's purpose is to be God's ambassador, God's steward, God's representative on this earth to manage everything else he's already made. So let's pick up at uh, verse 24. That's where we left off. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creatures according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. Are you getting the repetition here? And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image. We're going to come back to this. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, here's another one of those cases of a summary statement, and then later you get the details of that. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every 
living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was what? Very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now what I want to do is I want to focus back on 26, 27, and 28 for a minute. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. We we already saw in verse 2 that God's spirit was hovering over the waters. This is, again, a reference, we believe, to the Trinity, that we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We know from Colossians 1 that all things were made by, through, and for Jesus, and Jesus holds everything together. Jesus was the agent of creation that God the Father was working with and through, and so we know that our God is three, and yet he is one, and he has always been this way, and our God as three and yet one created all things. And then in verse 26, he says, let us make man according to our likeness. What does that mean? The first thing is this. No matter how terrible some people may act, every human being has value. Every single human being. Because every person was made in the image of God. And so however they act, There is an intrinsic value in every human life because they bear, to some degree, the image of their creator. But the question has been, and scholars have debated and theologians have debated for years, what does it mean? The imago Dei, the image of God, what is that? I believe it's right here in the passage. Verse 26, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and the cattle, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that use fruit on the earth. I think exactly what God is saying here is that I'm going to put man as my ambassador. He's made in my image. And that as we rule over God's creation, as we have dominion over his earth, as we manage what God has created, we are walking in his likeness. We are being his likeness. We are being his ambassador on this world. That may not be that all that the Mago Day is, but I think this verse links it very clearly. Let's make man in our image, and in our image he will have dominion over everything. So I think those two are linked. And then verse 27, we see it for emphasis. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And here it is again. Let them have dominion. That's verse 26. So he created man, verse 27, in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them again. That God has created us in his image and he has created us as his ambassadors in this world. And then verse 28, the command. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That's our, our job is to look, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue. That is what God has called us to do born in his image, made in his image as his ambassadors in this world. And then finally, verses one through three, then the heavens and the earth of chapter two, then the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were what? Finished. He has ceased from his creation. It's all been done. 
And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he has done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which he had done and made. So the seventh day was the day of what? Of rest. Two thi- uh, four things from verse 3. First, it says that he blessed it. That's the Hebrew word barak, and it means to bend the knee, to bow before someone, to uh, bless them. To honor them. And it's saying that God is blessing his creation. On the seventh day, yom, day, this word is overwhelmingly used throughout scripture to refer to a 24-hour literal day. And when it is not, it's very clear that it's not. Such as in the days of so-and-so. That would mean a period of time. And the text is very clear that it's not a literal 24-hour day. Here it is literal. It's very clear. And then sanctified. That's Kadesh. That's the Hebrew word that we translate as in in, in the noun form. That would be holy. Set apart. God set apart the seventh day for something special. What was it that he set it apart for? For rest. It's the Hebrew. There's a verb there. It's Shabbath. Which the noun form probably sounds familiar to you. Sabbath. A day of rest. Resting is not aimless. Resting is purposeful. And we'll see that God built that into the rhythm of his creation. And so there are so many things. You're probably wondering, where is he going with this? Well, there are so many things you can learn from Genesis 1. But I want to give you three things that I think are fundamental to us as believers to having a proper understanding of biblical authority. The first is this. In six literal days, God created all we know. And on the seventh he rested. In six literal days, God created all we know, and on the seventh, he rested. Now, you might ask, well, how can you be sure it was six literal days? When you're speaking, you have to anticipate objections. So to say, well, how can you be sure? Well, first of all, I've just walked you through a very clear running exegesis of Genesis 1. It is absolutely clear when you read in any literature where it says there was morning and evening in a day, what is that? That is a day. The only reason to say it's not a literal day is if you have a preconceived idea that then you are imposing on Genesis 1. The clear teaching of Genesis 1 is six literal days. The repetition screams it. But second, Exodus chapter 20, absolutely, I know for me, just closes the debate on whether these are literal days or not. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, otherwise known as the fourth commandment. God has delivered Israel from Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He's giving them his word, the big ten, the ten commandments. And as a part of that, he gives them a command to rest, to honor the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Again, the noun form of the verb in Genesis 1, to rest. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your father, nor your, or excuse me, your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens. Is that figurative? No. This is literal. In six days the Lord made the heavens, and on the seventh, 
uh, and, and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So what God is saying is, you work six literal days, rest on the seventh, just like I made everything in six days and rested on the seventh. There is no other way to translate that and be honest with Scripture. Those are just literal days. So again, how can you be so sure literal days? Because I believe that's the clear teaching of Scripture. But then there are those that ask, well, what about theistic evolution? Did God use evolution to create everything? Well, in answer to that, I would say that those that say that creation has more of a mature thing for dating, we'll get to that in a minute. But it's obvious that God created a mature creation. God did not create Adam as a baby. I mean, he couldn't have survived. God created Adam as a full-grown man and Eve as a full-grown woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply. That is mature creation. So God, if he wanted to create a hundred-year oak tree, guess what? He created a hundred-year oak tree. God created a mature creation. But the second thing is the repetition of according to its kind you can't get away from that. It rules out evolution. One species did not become another species. God created them according to their kind and then told them to be fruitful and multiply. God did not create something that then became a monkey that then one day became a man. He created a monkey to be a monkey and to be fruitful and multiply with other monkeys. And he created a man to be fruitful and multiply with other human beings. And so God created according to its kind. And then third, evolution, here's the biggest obstacle, would have had to involve billions of deaths before the fall of man. And to teach that there was death before the fall is at best poor theology, at worst heretical. To teach that there was death before the fall is counter-Orthodox theology. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12 for just a minute. If you believe that all of these creatures had to die over billions of years for then man to arrive at his present state, the Bible just simply does not teach that. There was no death before sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 has a whole discussion about this, uh, the whole chapter. But I just want to point out one verse, Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as... Though through one man sin entered the world, and what? Death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sin. Here's the point of Romans 5. It very clearly teaches that death came to this world through one man. And the argument of Paul in Romans 5 is, therefore, life also came through one man, the man Jesus Christ. So the whole argument of Paul in the book of Romans is that there was no death before the fall of man, that man brought death into the world through his sin, just as Christ has brought life to the world through himself. And so to teach that there was death before the fall of man is just contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. But lastly, this is not a new thing to First Baptist Church, Liberty City. So if you're kind of newer to our church, you're like, oh, why is he going so hard on this? I'll get to it in my second point. Why? This has been the church, our stance of our church for decades. We have a VBS regularly that deals with creation to teach kids how to combat evolution. We also have one of our elders that's been a part of our church. He's not a current elder, but he's been an elder 
that has a creation ministry that's one of our missions that we support. I mean, this has been the stance of the church for a long time, so if you're surprised by this, this is not new. Uh, in fact, when I taught on Sunday evenings through Genesis, I mean, I taught the same thing on Sunday evenings. So if you're kind of shocked by this, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. Welcome to the club. It's been this way for a while. Uh, but I want you to understand that this is the clear teaching of Scripture. Now, why am I so adamant about that? Second point from Genesis 1. How we handle Genesis 1 determines how you handle the rest of the Bible. That's why I'm so adamant about it. It's about biblical authority. To me, it is not about creation versus evolution. It's, it's just, that's not the issue to me. The issue is, does the Bible say what it says, and can we clearly understand it, and will we uphold it? Biblical authority is the thing for my life. See this Bible? See how tattered this Bible is? It's, it's broke apart. Most of the pages are just pretty ragged. This was a Bible that was given to me when I was a child and mostly sat on my bookshelf until in my early 20s. I quit rebelling against God's call for my life and I got serious about surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This Bible went with me everywhere I went. This Bible rode with me in my car, it went with me to work. I fell asleep with this Bible over and over again. It's worn because it's that used. And I don't say that to boast, what I'm saying is when I really got serious about following the Lord, I realized that this is where it's at. If I want to know God reigning supreme in my life, it's not going to happen apart from his word. If I really want to know God's best for my life, it's not going to happen apart from his word. If I really want to walk in the victory that is mine in Jesus Christ, it would not happen apart from his word. And believers, if we do not hold up biblical authority, if we can't just boldly proclaim the clear teaching of Scripture, we have already lost the battle. God has called us to hold up his word. And if there are things in his word that you struggle with and you don't understand, it is not your job to put something in there that God has not said. It's our job to fall before his word and say, I'm broken and I don't understand it. That's our job. And so the second point, again, how you handle Genesis 1 determines how you handle the rest of the Bible and that is my heart. I want you to hear my heart as a pastor. It's not to beat up people that believe in evolution or theistic evolution. It is to say we can't do that because we must hold up God's word. And that is the real issue. Biblical authority. And so to help you out a little bit is what about the appearance of an older earth in some scientific testing? That's a valid question. I want to give you an answer for that. Probably figured I would. Here's the first answer. Science is always catching up to the Bible, not the other way around. The Bible is always proven true. Why do science textbooks have to be written and rewritten over and over again? Because we're always finding out new things. You don't use a scientific textbook. You don't use a science textbook from the 1980s because there are things that have been proven untrue since then, and it has been updated. 
I'm not against science. We are to use our minds. We are to love God with our minds. But we must understand that if we find something in science that contradicts the Bible, I don't impose science on the Bible. I say, God, I know one day your word is going to be proven true over what I don't understand about science. That's the stance we take. Is it God, your word is true, and this is not making sense, but I know one day science will catch up to your word. We don't have to fear science. It over and over again validates what God has said. And so again, science is always catching up to the Bible, not the other way around. But second, the flood was an event of massive pressure. Did you know they're making man-made diamonds now through pressure? So if we, in our ignoramus brains, can figure out how to make diamonds, couldn't God use a flood and all of the pressure of that flood in such a way as he's destroying life? Wouldn't that also create the pressure that gives the appearance of an older age? Absolutely. But again, if we don't understand what Genesis 1 is saying, if we can't, some say, well, we're, our understanding of the Bible is always growing this is clear. <laughs> if we can't understand Genesis 1, then how can you understand John 3.16? If God did not say and it was so, then how do we know that Jesus saves? You don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible are clear and aren't based on what you feel comfortable with. This is clear. And we must stand on biblical authority. And that, fourthly, is just, that's my heart. I want you to hear that. In the world in which we live, believers, you better have an extremely high view of biblical authority. You better hold on to God's word with all that you have. And you better be ready for the world to do everything it can to take it from you. And so you need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And that brings us to our third and final point is this. God built rest into the rhythm of creation. And as we rest, we are honoring God. Rest is not a passive thing. Rest, even in resting, it's an active thing. It is a choice to rest. The fourth commandment was not a commandment to worship. That's commonly misunderstood. We read it already. The fourth commandment, God did not say, on the Sabbath day you shall worship. He said, on the Sabbath you shall what? Rest. Rest. That was a command given by God. He also included festivals, uh, times during the year, other times they were to cease from their labor. In fact, for an agricultural community, for them to rest on the seventh day was an act of faith. For a farmer to not get in, out and harvest his crops, for them to not get out and work their cattle, that was an expression of saying, God, we're trusting you to provide. We're going to do what you tell us to do, and we're going to trust you to be faithful. That's what it was. It wasn't God being mean or, or even legalistic. It wasn't God being oppressive or having unrealistic expectations. It was God giving his people a way to demonstrate faith and obedience towards him. I remember one time when I was preaching, again, out of the Old Testament on Sunday nights, and we got to the year of Jubilee. Somebody came up to me, and they really had a problem with it. The year of Jubilee was supposed to occur every 50 years. It was a way that God designed to keep Israel from becoming heavily indebted or enslaved to one another. So every seven years, they were to give the land a year off, a year of rest. And so 
God took this rhythm of six days work, seventh rest. He built that into their years. Six years you work, seventh you give the land a rest. Then on the year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year, so seven times seven is 49, then you get to the 50th year, they were to let the land rest for the 49th year and the 50th year for two years in a row, and God promised he would provide to them. That two years of letting the land rest was to be a great act of faith on the part of the nation of Israel. I had somebody come up to me right after the service say, I grew up farming and there's no way that would work. I was like, well, why don't you tell God that? Because I was just telling you his word, you know? But that is the point. It really doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to us. God didn't ask for our opinion on it. He just said, here's what you do by faith. That's why Hebrews says, by faith we believe the worlds were created by God. You see, it's all an act of faith. Nobody was there to say, God, that was a cool star you made. I really like that one. It's all by faith. It's all by faith. And God built this rhythm of rest into his creation. As we rest, we honor him. I want to give you two things, and then I'll bring it to a close. When I was writing my dissertation, I was going seven days a week, man. I mean, pastoring a church, wife, four kids, trying to write essentially an academic book that was 200 pages long. I was going seven days a week. I'd get up early on Friday mornings and come in and work till lunch, try to get back home, spend time with my family, do the same thing on Saturdays. Usually still had sermon prep to do. I mean, I was burning the candle on both ends. And I was coming down to the deadline to get my dissertation in. And I was like, this is not adding up. It's not working. And God convicted me that I was not honoring him in rest. And I began to take Fridays completely off. Sometimes I would just turn off my phone, leave it on the nightstand. I wouldn't, I wouldn't reply to emails or text. I wouldn't worry about dissertation writing. And then I would go in early on Saturday mornings to my office, and I would just write for as long as I could stand to write on Saturdays. Do you know that in the few months that I did that, I wrote twice as many pages as I did in the time when I was going seven days a week? It's not about me. It's about honoring God about understanding his command to rest and saying, God, by faith, I will do what you say. Now, for us today, and this is the last thing I want to make sure we understand, we're not confused on this. Sunday is not the Sabbath. That's a common misunderstanding. The Sabbath was Saturday in Jewish culture. Saturday was their day to rest. There is a common misunderstanding that so as Jesus died and rose again, as he rose again on Sunday, the Christian church began to worship on Sundays. There is a common misunderstanding that people say, well, the Sabbath just moved to Sunday. No, it didn't. That's not what happened. Because if that had been the case, you would have read in the book of Acts that the believers rested on Sundays. That's not what they did. The believers got together in house to house had a big meal and worshiped and the prophets spoke and they celebrated the resurrection of King Jesus that in him he had fulfilled the Sabbath and as the book of Hebrews teaches now we have ceased from all of our spiritual work and we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so there is a common misunderstanding there about the Sabbath. So what is Sunday for? If Sunday were truly the new Sabbath we wouldn't be here. I sure wouldn't be here. I'd be home resting. You follow me on that? This is work. I'm wore out by the time I leave here on Sunday morning. This is not Sabbath for me. And so it didn't, we didn't just swap Saturday and Sunday. 
There's something far greater that's happening. And I've run out of time, so I'm going to just summarize it. But the, he, the book of Hebrews clarifies this. It says that in Jesus, Jesus has finished our spiritual work. And now we enter into his Sabbath. We enter into a rest that Jesus has accomplished as he fulfilled the Sabbath. And so now spiritually, we are perpetually in a Sabbath that Jesus has made for us in him. But as not one jot or tittle of the law passes away, we still are to honor God in a regular time of rest. But we need to be careful not to be legalistic about that on Saturday. Some cults believe you have to worship and do this on Saturday or you're not going to heaven. No, that's a, that's a misapplication of God's word. But I do believe as even as Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath, God's command to rest has not ceased. And I believe one of the strategies of the devil is he keeps us running so fast that the people of God have forgotten how to listen for the voice of their king. And that is a great error in the church today. That we don't know how to be still enough to listen for God's voice. And the saddest excuse I've heard in all my years of ministry is I'm too busy to read my Bible. Well, then you're just too busy. And so for as believers, God has built rest into the rhythm of his very creation. And even as that Sabbath rest has been fulfilled in Jesus, God still expects us to honor him. Whatever your day of rest looks like, I don't know what that is. Doesn't mean just laying around in bed doing nothing, but it means ceasing from your labor, from your striving, and trusting God. And God will honor that. I promise you he will. I want to read one final verse as we close, and that's Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. Uh, Hebrews 9, 10, 11. And I encourage you, I ran out of time, but I'd encourage you to go back. If you're, you're curious about this and how this uh, works out, you can go back and, and read the book uh, of, of Hebrews uh, on your own. It's, it's deep. Hebrews 4 really deals with this issue of rest and, and verses uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 4. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, that's Jesus, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. That's what I want to close with. There is a rest still coming for the people of God. That's one way heaven is pictured as a rest that is coming. But if you've never put your faith in Christ, you're still trapped in your works. You're still trapped in your striving to be good enough. You're still working for God, for his favor, for his approval. And the lie about that, the sad thing about that lie is you'll never earn it. You'll never get there. You'll never work hard enough to be approved by God. But in Jesus, in Jesus, God accepts us. God forgives us. God calls us by name. So if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, that's what we want to close our service with, that you would turn from your way. That's called repentance. That you would turn from your striving and that you would place your faith upon Jesus, believing in him as the son of God given for your sins, that he would do what he said he would do to forgive you, to give you everlasting life, and that he would bring you in to his rest. Would you please stand with me? As we prepare to bring our service to a close, again, believer,
Do you work some sort of rest into your week? A, a, a cease striving from getting ahead. Maybe it's just a day to enjoy your family. Again, it doesn't have to be just laying on the bed all day. But to, to cease striving and to learn to listen to God. But secondly, maybe you're here today and this is all very foreign to you. Well, your journey begins by believing in Jesus. God will work it out from there. But that's your first step. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song of response. This is your opportunity to respond to God's word, to take him at his word, to trust him. That as he said, he will save you. That as you believe that he will do that, he'll keep his word. And so as I pray, let's respond to God and let's rejoice in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this moment. We give it to you. We know that you will be faithful to your word. You always are. May we really understand the real issue of biblical authority to, to take you at your word, to believe it with our whole life, to hold it up. That is the issue. Forgive us for how we doubt you, Lord. May we believe you with all that we are. And if there's one here today that has not put their faith in you to be saved, may this be their day. May this day they enter into your rest that you have purchased for us through your death, your burial, and your resurrection. So Jesus' name we pray. Amen.